Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, East Waco, past, present, and future. East Waco has the opportunity to really become the cultural center of Waco. We're hosting the first ever, to my knowledge, Waco Podcaster Collaboration. Austin Meek from Downtown Depot and Garrett Simmons from the Wacoans Podcast join Stephen and I in the studio to talk East Waco. Austin gives us a boots-on-the-ground view of the area, as well as insider info on development. So many doors have been open for me in the last 12 months as I've been pursuing this deal. As much as I can, I'm going to stick my foot in that door and I'm going to hold it open for as many people as possible. Stephen gives us some historical perspective on how the area became what it is today. You know, the river wasn't the color line for most of Waco's history, but that's recently how it's been perceived. And Garrett and I mostly hold on and ask questions. Immediately following our roundtable discussion, listen to interviews I did with people who live and work in East Waco. First is Carla Dotson, owner and operator of Boardwalk on Elm, a popular food truck in East Waco. And lastly, I talked to Doreen Ravenscroft about the Doris Miller Memorial that stands on the east banks of the Brazos. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past, present, and future. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. I bet you're all wondering why I called you here today. (laughs) This is uh, Randy Lane with the Waco History Podcast, but I also have some special guests in the studio. We are doing the first ever, to my knowledge, Waco Podcast collaboration. Wow. Um, (laughs) With our powers combined. I'll do a quick introduction of myself and then have both of you kind of talk about yourself so that people can get to know you. So I'm Randy Lane and I am one of two hosts on the Waco History Podcast, and we are looking at Waco's known and unknown stories. So that includes everything from the legal red light district that was here in Waco. Kind of the stuff we've done so far is World War I in Waco, Doris Miller, so anything related to Waco's past. And my co-host is Stephen Sloan. So I'm Stephen Sloan. I'm a, uh, a professor in the Department of History at Baylor University. I also created the Waco History app and a website at wacohistory.org. And uh, Randy and I came together uh, last summer. Uh, Serendipitously. To, yeah, to, cre- <laughs> yeah, to create the Waco History Podcast. Yeah, and so the idea was that I know very little about Waco. I want to know more, similar you know, to all you know you guys. know more than you did know. I know way more than I did know, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. So we also have on the podcast today... Austin Meek, and you have Downtown Depot, correct? 
Yes, I host a program on 103.3 KWBU called Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business ostensibly. It's basically me as a small business owner talking with other small business owners and engaged citizens and civic leaders about this renaissance that Waco's experiencing. When my wife and I moved to Waco in January 2015, a couple months later, we started Pokio's, our ice cream sandwich truck. So good. And thank you. (laughs) I realized that just by working on this truck every single day, living in downtown, working in downtown, I was hearing stories and I wasn't seeing them published in the Trib. And it was because I realized that I wasn't a quote unquote journalist and people wanted to share things with me. So I pitched KWBU on this show, Downtown Depot, and just said, hey, similar to Waco history, there are both stories known and unknown Mm -hmm. that are happening here in Waco. Let's shine a spotlight on some of these people. And so it's been really fun. We've done 57 episodes up to this point. It has been a terrific opportunity for me to talk to people way outside of my tax bracket and people much smarter than me, people with longer histories in Waco than I have. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to get to have that show and especially to get to be here with Garrett and Stephen and Randy. This is really fun. And Garrett, you have the Waco Wins podcast. Can you kind of tell us about that? Yeah, I've been in Waco now for two and a half years. Like Austin, I was walking around the the farmer's market talking to people and realizing, hey, these people have a story. They aren't just their business and people should get to know the people behind the business. Two months after moving to Waco, I started asking people, hey, do you want to talk? And I first episode, I set my cell phone between me and the person I was interviewing and just started recording. And we're now 50 episodes in, three seasons, talking to people behind stuff. So I talked to like this season, uh, which was just releasing, talking to artists, doing a focus on the Waco art scene, as well as a couple small business owners. Who is your first guest? Rebecca Hagman, Cultivate 712 is our first guest this season. And we also, ones that I can announce, uh, Ryan Thomas, who is kind of like an indie rapper here, who's doing really cool stuff. I think he's going to explode real soon. So I'm kind of glad I got him. I got him now on uh Tynath and Clark is set up to come on the show and do an interview. So the Art Center is is coming on as well. The art scene here in Waco is exploding, and I really wanted to get in and let people know uh, to keep an eye out on it. And I feel like we all in, have in common that we're really interested in Waco. Some of us have been here a very long time. Some of us have just gotten here. I've only been here about five years, so that's about the same as you, Austin. Is that right? January 15 is when we moved here. I don't know what year or month it is. (laughs) (laughs) For me, there's all different parts of Waco that are really interesting, and I'm learning more about them all the time. And one area that I just really didn't know very much was East Waco. And I've heard about, you know, all the stuff that's going on in Elm, and I was really interested in what is the community like? What's the historical significance of the area? Where is it going? So I thought... Let's all get together and let's discuss it. And we'll talk about it from the perspective of the past, where it is now and where it's going. So let's start with the present. And I've talked to a couple people to kind of get their perspective from people that live in the area. But Austin, you're really involved down there. You've got some projects going on. Can you kind of tell us about what's your perspective on East Waco? When I first moved to Waco, Lula Jane's was one of the places that I went. I heard it was a great spot to go get croissants, and I am a pastry fiend, so of course (laughs) I had to go check that out. Just got talking with Nancy and learned a little bit about her heart for East Waco, some of the history behind East Waco, and Stephen can speak to this better than I could, but there is a terrific heritage of the arts and culture in East Waco in particular. And I think that that's the opportunity as Elm Avenue continues to develop is that it really can become the cultural and arts hub of Waco. Uh, Doreen Ravenscroft is one of the people who's working really hard to make that a reality. And I think that 
just from a development perspective, we are developing the 400 block of Elm Avenue. So right across the street from Lula Jane's, right behind Brotherwell Brewing, we're developing this half acre property. And when I say we, I mean me. I just say <laughs> we so that I don't feel so alone and incompetent. Um, the goal there is that we need more spaces, like what Garrett's going to be exploring this season on the Wake Owens. There is a voracious appetite for arts in Waco and simply aren't enough venues for it to happen. Mm. You know, really, when you look at the music scene in Waco, we have the backyard and the Hippodrome and Common Grounds. And outside of those three, which are all targeting pretty specific niche groups, there aren't a lot of places that you would want to go see a concert or as a band would want to perform. So what we'll be developing on Elm Avenue is a place called Mammoth Culture Club. And we'll have a smaller stage indoors, a larger stage outdoors on our patio with the goal of being a radically inclusive wild place where you can come one night and it's a hip hop show. You come the next night, we're having an indie band. I think that that mentality is very in line with the ethos of East Waco. Uh, this is a place where you know, we're not really downtown, even though it's sort of considered downtown, but it's not on that side of the river. Over in East Waco on Elm Avenue, you can kind of unbutton your top button and, and lay back, have a margarita, listen to some music. And that's the vibe that we're trying to cultivate there at Mammoth Culture Club. You're kind of in the area. We were talking that you actually go to meetings with the community and you really have your ear to the ground of what's going on in there. What is the feeling of the people in East Waco, in your experience, to all this development coming in? I sense terrific optimism from many of the people that I've spoken with in East Waco and also some hesitation mm -hmm. with projects like Mammoth Culture Club. They're really excited about having a place that has affordable drinks and cool programming, stuff that they want to participate in. They aren't as excited about three hotels popping up in East mm -hmm. Waco. That's going to change the entire look of their side of town. I think that it's important for anyone who's looking to develop over there, or if you're a small business who's looking to open over there, I think it's really important to realize that the people who live in the neighborhood can and should be your customers. And they care about the neighborhood. Oh, there's, I, I haven't met neighbors with as much pride in their neighborhood as I have in East Waco. That's awesome. And you would look down Elm Avenue right now and you don't see a lot of activity. You see a lot of, like on our property right now, 401 Elm Avenue, this building, it says Bull Durham smoking tobacco on the side. The roof caved in 15 years ago. Um, it has been a den of sex, drugs, and alcohol for years and years, like a lot of those buildings were. And, and the way that some of these buildings are starting to turn is that a fellow by the name of Doug Brown, who is a Waco philanthropist, acquired a lot of these buildings and just started buying them in the 80s and 90s because he saw that they were being used for disreputable activity. And he didn't want him to be used for that. He didn't have plans to develop, but he just wanted to say, hey, I'm going to keep people from using these for illicit purposes. When Doug passed away suddenly in 2009, his daughter Kathy and son Sam inherited this portfolio of like 40 plus buildings. And Sam and Kathy don't want to be landlords. They don't want to be developers. They really see themselves as trustees of this property. And they are selling these properties to people who have a vision for East Waco that's in line with what theirs is. And that vision is creating a place that is inclusive, that is fun, that's safe, uh, but that also is distinct from downtown. And I think that as Waco continues to develop, and particularly as Magnolia continues to expand, because I think this network is going to be a pretty big deal. But I do think that as the specter of Magnolia continues to grow, there is going to be a desire for locals 
to have something that feels truly local. Mm -hmm. And even though the people who work in Magnolia are locals, like Chip and Joanna, they are Wacoans, there's something about being around a bunch of other tourists that makes it feel like it's not as local an experience. And so Elm Avenue, as a commercial district, has such a terrific opportunity to be the place for locals to come. You know, just from a development perspective, when you're looking at downtown, if it's your 21st birthday, you want to go get rowdy, you can go to one bar on this block, and then you can walk down another block, and you can go to another bar, and then you can cross a one-way street and walk down two blocks, and then there's a third bar. There's very little cohesion in the way that downtown Waco is established right now. On Elm Avenue, you've got one strip. It's all facing the Alico building. You have the bones for having a true quote-unquote bar district will have other uses for it. But I just think that if you're looking at creating a spot where people really want to go, Elm Avenue and East Waco is a much easier project to tackle than solving all of the problems that you have in downtown with one-way streets and other issues that are there. You know, it's it's really cool hearing you where you're going to put that. Uh, right out of high school, me and my friends decided we were going to make a short film, and it was post-apocalyptic. And we ended up right where you're going to build your spot, right there to simulate this dilapidation to shoot the film. Because it was, we didn't know where we were at, but it looked like it had been left alone for a really long time. Well, and it's so old school that the Robert Redford film, The yep. Old Man and the Gun. I saw it in there. They filmed that going right along Elm Avenue, and then there's the children who are walking in front of our building, and then Robert Redford switches cars and peels up from behind. So there are bones in East Waco that can't be replicated. And I will tell you, I've actually done a photo shoot for people there who wanted the kind of urban decay look. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> has that. And so it's, it's unfortunate that that's the kind of look that it has, but I see what you're saying. Like, it has a lot of potential and you were mentioning like the bar district type of thing, but you also were talking about different retail opportunities that may even serve the people in the area, right? At the edge of our property are three slabs from buildings that used to be there. I don't know when they fell, but for me as a developer, I see that there's a bunch of concrete here. As a food truck owner, I know in order for me to park my food truck somewhere, I need a smooth, non-permeable surface upon which I can park my vehicle. A place like that is ideal for food trucks or other sort of mobile vendors. Right now, the neighborhood isn't ready for having ground floor retail with apartments up above. I do think that whether it's 10 years or 20 years, that is the play for the property. That will be the best and highest use as we continue to fill in some of this urban area and we need to go upwards. But right now, the goal is to get this space available for the public as soon as possible and we can utilize the existing concrete slabs. So what we'll do is we'll be putting shipping containers down on these concrete slabs. We have laid out right now 10 shipping containers and one of them will be a taqueria but the other nine are going to be retail concepts and the goal is that we would be providing retail options that the neighbors don't have. So as you mentioned earlier, I've been working with City Center Waco on this Elm Avenue working group and me and other community leaders from East Waco talk about the needs. What are the jobs that need to be filled? Do we have people who can take advantage of this spotlight that's on East Waco and the development that is coming? How do we make sure that we are a part of this development? It's not just development that's happening to us. How can we be developing with these people? So that's the goal of this working group is to highlight those opportunities. And at the slab, we have opportunities. One of the containers that we have there I'm going to be setting aside, it's going to be available rent-free for someone in East Waco who either graduates from the Weibo program or from Startup Waco's program. 
And the goal is that they would complete that either six or eight week course. After that, they would get a little bit of seed money. I will give them rent free for a year and they can start their business in East Waco. And I think that, you know, if you're a kid who lives on Hood Street or you live on Archer or Nathaniel McCoy and you walk down to Elm and you see the kid who lives on your block and he's got his own shop there, that's what sparks the interest. That's Mm -hmm. what makes me think, oh, maybe I'll go take that Weibo class next time it comes up. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's incumbent upon people like me who, while I don't have money, but I've been given a lot of opportunities. And I realize that just by virtue of being an educated white man, so many doors have been open for me in the last 12 months as I've been pursuing this deal. As much as I can, I'm going to stick my foot in that door and I'm going to hold it open for as many people as possible. So when I'm taking a look at this property and the ways that I want to develop it, yeah, it totally makes sense for me to set one of these containers aside and give it to someone in the neighborhood who has a great business idea and they just need an opportunity to do it because people have given me opportunities when I didn't deserve it. If there's somebody who's going to be working their butt off and they are deserving, I would love to be the person who can extend that to them. Mm -hmm. It's nice to hear that someone has the community in mind like that because one of the things coming from Fort Worth and seeing people just take over areas, business owners just coming in and just taking over an area and not including the community, it's nice to hear that at least you and Nancy have the community in mind when building this up. I'm not a real estate developer. And that's my benefit coming into this is that I don't have years of development experience. I'm not looking at how can we eke out the final scent and refigure this in our pro forma. I'm a community developer. That's what we use the Pokio's truck for is to bring people together. As much as I can, I want this to be a community development tool as well. Mammoth Culture Club is a community development tool. The goal is that we will have one piece of live programming every single day. Maybe that'll be a really cool concert that's happening. Maybe it's the East Waco Basket Weaving Society is coming to teach us all of their skills. Off the hook. We, we, we Got the want, name already. We want to be that kind of place where we can be building community. And some people feel a closeness when they're connected by music. Others feel a closeness when they're connected by good food and good drink. Some folks want to have an activity, basket weaving. I'm an Eagle Scout, and what I really want to do is to start a scout troop. And we will have our weekly meetings at Mammoth Culture Club. I just think that the East Waco Eagles has such a nice ring to it. (laughs) And I've just had this dream in my mind of you go through this pretty grueling process to get your Eagle Scout. But when you have that final court of honor and we have that big party at Mammoth Culture Club, I want the whole community to come out. And we will all support this young man or now young woman who have achieved the rank of Eagle and overcome a lot of odds to get there. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to do is be developing culture like that. And I think for the same reason that I got into downtown Depot, I was not a journalist, quote unquote. I was just a person who saw that there was a need and figured I can either wait until somebody else does it. I can sit here and complain that this hasn't happened yet, or I can try to do it myself. And that's been my ethos as I've moved to Waco is that this is a city that really rewards proactivity and not everything has been done here. So if you're a person who's willing to hustle and you work with integrity and you play well with others, you can get really far. So with your construction, are you using a pre-existing building in your construction? The building that's at 401 Elm Avenue, it says Bull Durham Smoking Tobacco, this beautiful anachronism. We will be constructing a new building inside of that, but the building itself will remain the outside facade. So it is a much more expensive process to do what we're doing. All of our energy bills are going to be a lot higher than they would (laughs) if we just went ground up. But to me, it's really important to maintain the sense of place. If you have 
been down Elm Avenue anytime since 1899. The Sanborn fire map shows this building. So it was built at least before 1899. You saw this building every time you walked down that street. And if I were to demolish that building, that's taking away a major sense of place for people in the community, for people who were visiting Waco 10 years ago and then they left and now they're back. Hey, where'd that thing go? Mm -hmm. Even though it is more expensive, my goal is that we can make clear that the less expensive route isn't always the best route. And if you do put more into it at the beginning, you can get more out of it. I will say that the people I've talked to who have the most apprehension are concerned about losing the identity of what is East Waco. And I like that idea of saying we can build something new, but use these old bones. So it really does still feel like it used to. Why do you think that's important? And do you see other people going down that same road? I mean, I know it's more expensive and it's harder. I, I see someone like yourself who's been here. You see the heart of the city. So that's important to you. But I could also see people who don't understand it and they just want to bulldoze a block and put something up. I think that keeping the old buildings on M Avenue is important just design wise. We want to keep the integrity of the block in the neighborhood. I think it's also important as a metaphor. Like, even though this thing is older, it doesn't mean it's garbage. Mm-hmm. Let's find a way that we can renew the sense of purpose that was within this building. One thing that has been helpful for me is the TIF program. The Tax Increment Finance Zone has awarded us $275,000 for our project. A large portion of that will be going toward restoring this building, particularly the facade of it, brickwork, glazing. So yeah, if I were just looking at it from a numbers and sense perspective, it doesn't make sense at all. But the city has said, hey, this is worthy of our tax dollars. We want to preserve these buildings. So if you are someone who's looking at developing on Elm Avenue, I strongly encourage you to go through the TIF program because there are dollars there to incentivize you to retain the look of these buildings. I'm still really new to Waco. I'm still trying to figure stuff out. My question to all of you is why Elm Avenue and why right now? Why hasn't this happened before? Are you looking at the historian to answer that question? Yeah, let's do that. I think one thing Austin's talking about that he's dealing with with community members over there is there's been these attempts at restarts in the past. So there's been that discussion of creating Elm Avenue as an arts district as a historic district in the past. And so I would imagine one of the things you're running into is some skepticism on the part of some people as far as this attempt. I mean, now we're seeing real energy and I think the political will behind it that wasn't there before. And so, you know, there, there's been these false starts in the past, but it's really been more conceptual rather than the, that political will behind it or the capital coming in. And it takes, you know, we mentioned Nancy to start out. It does take a proof of concept, somebody going into the community. Of course, Nancy had been there for a while with, with Rappaport Project. Sure. But they're demonstrating that it can be done. I mean, it's amazing to me when I go down my, M Avenue now during the day and see the activity over there of people going to a side of town that they never interacted with before. And it's just amazing to see that there's such a strong connection between East Waco now and Baylor. And that's something that that, that didn't really exist before. And so I, I think it's really encouraging to see this momentum building. But there have been a lot of false starts. You drive down Elm Avenue and you see that there's 50 cars parked here and you realize they're almost all there for Lula Jane's. Mm-hmm. This is just, it, it's wild that this many people would be going into that small of a place, but it's a testament to what Nancy's built, the community that she's built, and of course the yummy pastries. But but why Elm Avenue as, why is it the yes, spot now? Exactly. 
when I was going through this TIF process, I looked at the Imagine Waco plan, which was enacted in 2010 or 2011. It was the city's development guidelines. Going through it, there were four main principles that they wanted to accomplish. One of them was that they want to have equity and opportunity on Elm Avenue and that they want to develop both sides of the river. But when I looked back at all of the TIF funding that had been dispersed since this Imagine Waco plan had been enacted, based on my numbers, and once again, not a mathematician, about 95% of the TIF dollars had gone to projects on the west side of the Brazos rather than the east side of the Brazos. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Possibly people in East Waco were not submitting projects, or they're just, like Stephen said, there just wasn't the capital to do it. But that's pretty telling when you have a quote-unquote initiative from the city but the city dollars are all going towards one side of the river. So I think now, to answer your question, Garrett, there's just more interest in East Waco because, one, people realize that there's TIF money available that's been underutilized. Elm Avenue is also included in the Opportunity Zone that was created in the end of 2017 in Trump's tax plan. So that's an economic incentive as tax shelter. But I think that really people just see... I mean, I can only speak for myself, but when I moved here in 2015... I'm driving around Waco and I see this beautiful street four blocks from the river is four blocks from the river. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what side of the river you're on guys. And I was just thinking, why is it okay that there's all these businesses over here and everything over here shuttered? And I think that there's just enough spotlight on Waco now that people realize whatever stigmas that may have been associated with Elm Avenue or East Waco, there are economic reasons why we need to set those stigmas aside and realize there are a lot of people who are coming into our town without any preconceptions without knowing a sordid history here, and they simply want to be close to the action. And if you can't afford to be four blocks on this side of the river, maybe you can afford to be four blocks away on that side of the river. And I've known some people that have had rental properties near Magnolia before it was Magnolia. And then, of course, because of Magnolia being what it is now, the rent goes through the roof, and they're thinking, I still want that downtown vibe for my location. What's the next place that is affordable, but not done up enough where the rent's going to be crazy. And so they go, Elm Avenue is a place where we can go. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? People are getting pushed out because the Magnolia area is so expensive and the downtown area is maybe more expensive? I don't see that happening as much as people saying, for its own sake, I want to be in East Waco. People are choosing to be there. They recognize that Magnolia is growing. And when you really want to retain that authentic Waco-ness, it's going to be harder to do that when you're surrounded by tourists. Hmm. East Waco has the opportunity to really become the cultural center of Waco. And I think that Elm Avenue, it it has the bones to be great. You just have to have some of this infill. It's hard to convince someone who's shopping to shop here and then walk across an empty parking lot and then keep shopping there and then cross another street and then go there. It's like a big, beautiful smile and you're missing a bunch of teeth. That's what I think of when that's I what, look at downtown That's what Waco. makes it successful downtown is walkability. And downtown Waco doesn't have it and it, it has the challenges of it. Elm Avenue is literally a straight line that you can walk down. You can walk the whole length of the actual like retail spaces in what, 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And when you look at the amenities that are in East Waco, you've got a library. You've got Nancy Grayson's food store that'll be opening up shortly. You have Tony DeMaria's terrific barbecue. There are so many positive increments on Elm Avenue and more will be coming in the next few months and years that I think it's a home run. I don't know why you would want to pay more to live downtown so that your beautiful view out of your six-story apartment building can be a parking lot. So how does 
all this development on Elm benefit all of East Waco because East Waco is a lot bigger than just one street. It benefits East Waco for two reasons. One, as someone who lives in the neighborhood, you now have many more amenities. Mm -hmm. Hopefully these developers are bringing amenities that you actually care about. You might not want to go rent out the ballroom in the new Hollywood or whatever it's called, the IHG Holiday Inn Express. But I'm sure as hell hoping you're going to want to come over to Mammoth Culture Club and have a beer with me. Or go get your boots shined here, or go do your food shopping there, go work out at the Fit Waco. But also, it's an issue that inevitably these people's property taxes will rise, but their property is more valuable. So a lot of people in East Waco don't want to move. There are houses that have been passed down from generation to generation, and this is where my grandma grew up. I don't really want to leave. But I do think that all of the development will just create such terrific value for these homes and for the dirt that the homes are on that some of these people will realize that even though we have a great history here in East Waco, I can take this money and go have a much nicer house in a different part of town. And that that's a good and bad thing. You know, this is kind of as we veer towards the topic of gentrification. Mm-hmm. I think that those, the calls of gentrification are a bit overblown as we're talking about East Waco because gentrification is not what's happening in East Waco. Gentrification is in Brooklyn. We tear down this bodega that has served everyone in the neighborhood for years, and we build a 60-story apartment tower with rents that nobody can afford. Taking a building that has been decrepit and out of use for 30 years and putting a new use inside of that, yes, that might raise your property taxes, but that's not gentrification. That's just development. Like that's mm-hmm. That's the way that these things happen. And so we do need developers who are conscious of the impact that their development is making on the people who live in East Waco. But I do think that the calls of gentrification are pretty overblown in this case and really not in line with what gentrification is happening in larger cities. Maybe education needs to be, needs to happen there. Maybe people need to talk about it more, maybe have people in the community talk about it more. And that's on us. We, we need to get the news out more and then get the feedback from the community. I mean, East Waco is not a community that we hear a lot from. I don't know about y'all, but I, I think I've done, I've interviewed one person out of East Waco total. And I don't know how we go about that, but that's something that I think as a group we could work on is getting the voice of East Waco heard and uh, answer the questions that they're having. So I've been meeting more people from East Waco and one great advocate for the area is Doreen Ravenscroft, mm-hmm. who has cultural arts of Waco and she's also spearheading the Doris Miller Memorial Project. So I'm going to include that in this episode as well, my interview talking to her about East Waco and more specifically about the Doris Miller Memorial and its use as a draw to get people into this side of the river. One thing I heard from her and from Carla Dotson and other people I've talked to in the area is they said the people in the community just want you to listen to them. And I think that's such a beautiful thing because we need to talk. That's it. If we talk to these people and we're good community partners and we say, you know, we want to develop this area, put some really cool amenities in here, then let's talk with them about what their ideas are and see if we can meet somewhere in the middle where everybody benefits. People want to be proud of their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to be proud of a slew of misfit toys. You have a bunch of buildings that aren't being used and they really don't work. So I think that the people in East Waco will be very proud of the neighborhood that sprouts up around a bustling Elm Avenue corridor. You see that with the Jockey Club, I interviewed Iva Smith and one of the oldest, his name is Lloyd Dugan, and I interviewed them for Downtown Depot. 
And I just had Patricia Chisholm Miller, who is the mm-hmm. county commissioner for Precinct 2, of which Elm Avenue is a part on Downtown Depot recently. But there, there's just terrific pride in East Waco. And I want to make sure that I'm giving things that people should be proud of. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool to be talking to those people. I, I kept coming up when I was over there to, to go ch- talk to people at the Jockey Club. That's where you get all the news in the area. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you walk down Dallas Street or take a left on Rusk, and there's people playing dominoes on their front porch, people sitting out there having a good time. I stop and visit. That's something that has been really important to me over the last 12 to 18 months is getting in the goo in East Waco. And I've been able to do that through this working group through City Center Waco. But I've also been able to do that just by taking my baby Stevie and my wife Julia and we go take a walk. People are friendly. you know. <laughs> Whatever stigmas were associated with East Waco, they might still be there for some people, but they just aren't for me. I didn't come in knowing anything about East Waco. So I just see a beautiful part of town that's close to the river where people are friendly. And I mean, if you say hi to somebody, they're going to say hi back. And that's the beginning of a relationship. There's proof that that works in Waco. From what I've talked to, like older Wacoans, Cameron Park had that stigma. And now Cameron Park is a huge draw for Waco and everybody goes there and you're you're able to go there by yourself. But I still hear people old generations back Wacoans that are like, I don't go. I don't go over there. They're scared of it. So it, it's it's it works if just going out in the community without a stigma and just talking to people like you do. It works. Once again, it's an opportunity for new Waco, quote unquote, to take advantage of old Waco. If you're still going to be living in this mindset that your city hasn't changed since 1970 when you were in high school, you're going to be left behind. Like, you are a dinosaur. Yes, you might still own a lot of property downtown, and we can't do anything, but sometimes progress comes one funeral at a time. So, Austin, I think you're probably most qualified because you're in the area. What does East Waco look like in 10 years? I think in 10 years, Elm Avenue is going to be a legitimate commercial business district. My hope is that we can get a bank over there within the next 10 years. I think that that's a really important component for people who live in East Waco. The grocery store that Nancy Grayson is creating is another really important component. And Mm -hmm. we're all familiar with the concept of a food desert, Mm -hmm. but we don't often hear about how East Waco and Elm Avenue is a desert for so many other retail things. So for instance, at the slab, one of my goals is to put in a container sort of a general store where people would be able to buy stamps. There's a lot of folks in East Waco who cannot participate in the postal service because the post office is too far away. And if you go to HEB, you can't buy a single stamp. You have to buy the entire book. They're just barriers to a lot of people in East Waco being able to participate in our economy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those are transportation issues. You don't have a reliable vehicle or the bus only comes by once every hour and you have to go on a four hour route. I, I heard this talking to somebody a few days ago. On the bus, in Waco buses, you're not allowed to have more than two grocery bags. So if you're trying to take the bus to go to HEB and Bellmead to get groceries for your family, and it was a four-hour round trip, that's not a great use of your time. So I think that we'll have a lot more retail options on Elm Avenue that people in East Waco can access that's accessible because of the price point and accessible because of what it's actually offering. Then I think after 10 years, Randy, we're finally going to start to see some more work on, on Garrison. And particularly as Elm Avenue starts to curve, Clifton is right there over by Jaspers. And there are, some, once again, some really cool bones on Clifton. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a lot of people who are in my working group who own property on Clifton and want to see that develop. But you have to fill in th- this part of the teeth 
before you can fill in the other parts of the teeth. So <laughs> it's really, let's start at the river and let's kind of go block by block on Elm Avenue. We're on the 400 block, but first it's going to be the 100 block when Judge Ed Kincaid and his son Brad developed their apartments and ground floor retail. Then we've got the Empire Seed Company. Then we have a little subsidiary of the building where City Center Waco will be moving their operations and they hope to actually finish out some of this space to create retail spots that they can be giving, similar to what I'm doing at the slab, can be renting out affordably for people in the neighborhood. And then after that, we have an acre parcel that nothing's on right now, but there are some pretty cool designs for. And then you've got us on the 400 block and then it's all turtles all the way down. But I think that we're going to see every possible reason why you would want to live in a neighborhood we're going to be able to see that on Elm Avenue and it's going to be condensed and it's going to be very attractive. I love that you heard from the community these issues they're having, like the stamps and the groceries on the bus, because that's something that I'd never think of, but you really have to be there asking the people, what are the things that you're missing that can help you live a more fulfilling life? It blows my mind. I had no idea that that was even a thing. Yeah. So education needs to go both ways. We need to tell the rest of Waco what's going on because the fact that they don't have access to some of this stuff and they're limited on so many things. It takes living in an urban environment to realize the benefits of being in a walkable place. I lived downtown when we first moved here and then just recently bought a house over in Dean Highland. The only things that I can walk to are the gas station on 25th Street and Rufy's Casino. And I would gladly walk to Rufy's every single morning for breakfast. <laughs> oh, yeah. But not being able to go to my bank or not being able to go to my dry cleaner. These are real issues for me that now I have to drive to. And if I were someone who couldn't afford to have a car, I simply wouldn't be able to go to the bank. I could never go get my shirt starched. So when I go to that job interview, I'm not going to be dressed to the nines and maybe I don't get that job. You just you start to see as you have conversations with people in the neighborhood how intersected a lot of these issues are. And I don't claim to be the panacea, but in as much as I can help address the issues, I'm going to. So that's what we'll be doing on the 400 block. And if we can address the issues solely by giving someone who's deserving in the neighborhood a place to start their business, and that can be a beacon for the other people in the neighborhood, that's really what I feel like my calling is. Well, so we've got the present and the future. I think it's time to go back to the past. Is that okay with you guys? I have a past question. Why is it called East Waco? Well, because it's, it's North Waco. Yeah. 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 They've always called it East Waco. And part of the issue is the river bends there. The, the bend of the river, that side of the river at some point is East Waco. But as the river bends, it becomes North Waco. Okay. But they've always called it East Waco. And it's because Waco makes no sense... With yeah, you don't know where you are. You just have to kind of yeah. trust the naming of it. Yeah, once you call that east, it throws everything else off. <laughs> well, in the east side, I remember this from living in Austin. East Austin was the cool place. It's it's always kind of the other. You have your your main business district, and then you have the east side. So I think that that's very in line with the way that it. You know, we see the way that the TIF dollars have gone, but it's always sort of been viewed as the other side of the river, not even just East Waco. But now we can finally take that moniker and we can harness it and say, yeah, this is East Waco. Come on. Let's yeah. party. But if our kids grow up with bad compass uh, understanding, <laughs> of the, East Austin is actually in the East. Yes. So, I mean, that's <laughs> the, so one of the things that we haven't talked about that's interesting in the history of East Waco is at some point the racial aspect of it becomes known as the African-American part of town. 
And of course, Waco is a southern city. We talk about this all the time. Is Waco more southern or western? It's a southern city, and that that color line has always been there. Mm -hmm. But historically, you need to think of East Waco not that way. If there is a color line in East Waco historically, there is the flats and there's the hill. And so if we think of Garrison Street, Garrison Street would kind of be the border to the hill, which would be the more African-American area of East Waco. And then the flats, which is that area, that residential area going down to the river. And, of course, it's called the flats, and they were reminded of that in 1913 and 1936 when it floods because that area was very susceptible to flooding. But those 11 blocks were all white up until after World War II. I mean, what happens after World War II gradually is there's better homes down there. There's mm-hmm. much better homes uh, where they're living. African-Americans are living in shotgun wooden houses up on the hill there you know there's some really nice you can still go by and see them there's some really nice brick homes down in the flats area so what happens after world war ii as more money becomes available and we have the tornado and whites begin to move out into the suburbs african-americans they're buying better houses you know, they've got the resources to buy the better houses down there in the flats. So they say, oh, these are much better houses in a, in a better area. They don't really know about the flooding, per se? Well, the flooding, the water control projects on the Brazos early on really make the flooding less of an issue. Okay. You know, 36 is the last major flood, although we'll, we'll do one on this sometime. This The rain we had this year would have if we hadn't had the dam system would have been much worse than the 36 flood. Mm. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, your property, Austin would have <laughs> <laughs> underwater. Yeah, we would have been underwater. You know, I've interviewed uh, Cicero Martin, who was a barber at the jockey club for years. He's passed away. Now that business was over on the other side of the river. It was over on bridge street, which is gone now. And that was the prominent kind of a black owned business district. That was, if you think of the suspension bridge on out to through where the convention center sits now, that's where the jockey club was before. At some point, when that change happens after World War II, the jockey club moves. And, and was course, that urban renewal? No, urban renewal is going to contribute to this, but that comes after uh, the tornado and then urban renewal accelerates it. You know, that, that growth of African Americans kind of moving into that area and it becoming known as more of an African-American area. You know, the river wasn't the color line for most of Waco's history, but that's recently how it's been perceived. And so it's, you're really returning to a more, much more diverse neighborhood, which, which it was before. There's always been a color line in Waco historically, but a much more integrated community than we think of it. And we, you could also see in Austin, it sounds like you've looked at the old city directories one of the things that was in the old city directories is it marked, you would see a name and there'd be a C in parentheses after the name, which marked colored. And if you take those city directories, which there's, we could talk about that for an hour, but <laughs> if you take those city's directories and kind of overlay them on the city, you can see that, that there's a very integrated population, even though the way we perceive it now is much more segregated than it actually was. But that was not the black side of town. The layout of Waco was was much different than that. I had Patricia Chisholm Miller on Downtown Depot last week, and she was telling me, I think that the year was either 1970 or 1973. She had been living in Brooklyn and moved to Waco, and when she moved to Waco, the schools were segregated. 
and she thought it was really cool coming from Brooklyn that she got to go to a school with all other black kids and <laughs> she didn't really realize what was happening. She just thought it was kind of fun. And then she was in high school. I think she said it was her freshman year when Wake YSD started busing. And I just realized sitting across the table from her, you don't seem that much older than me, but <laughs> our worldviews are just so fundamentally different because you lived through this. My mother growing up in Mississippi, she was the only white girl in the fourth grade because her mom was a public school teacher. When the schools were integrated, all the white families pulled their kids out. And my grandma said, we're staying here. This is our school. And I look at someone like my mom who doesn't seem that dissimilar to me, but I think it's really important for people of our generation to realize that this inequality that is so stark and seems so evil to us now it was just part and parcel of being a human yeah. 50 years ago. And, yeah. and we need to be reminding ourselves of that to make sure that we don't ever lapse. But the tradition of Paul Quinn, I mean, is it kind of an intellectual school of learning uh, there at the top of the hill? I mean, there, there are some great traditions in East Waco that this revival can kind of pull on. Of Waco, East Waco is a great place, a great part of town, an extremely important part of town. And so it's exciting to see it kind of reclaiming some of those roots. Well, when and why did it fall into disrepair? Paul Quinn or East Waco in general? East Waco, or like like the Elm Avenue, like he said, there's there's part of it that is just decrepit. Yeah, I'll tell a story that we may not want to use, but (laughs) Cicero Martin, uh, he marked the ultimate decline of East Waco is when the prostitutes left. (laughs) 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 So he would talk about being at the jockey club and the prostitutes would kind of be out there on the street working. And, and, and at some point they just stopped working <laughs> East Wake. So I thought all sorts of different metrics on how we approve, <laughs> how we figure out how well an area of town is doing. But I would say given our history, we're going to leave that in. <laughs> and this was not the legal red light district. Let's make the distinction. No, no, we're here. well past the reservation. We, we, we've covered that in other episodes. So we're well past that. Uh, but I think, I mean, what you're seeing in East Waco in many ways is what downtown Waco used to look like. <laughs> I mean, you know, as we talk about why East Waco and why now, part of what we've seen in the past 20 years is is a build out of a lot of the capacity downtown Waco had for development. And there's still more capacity there. But, you know, Waco was known for its empty parking lots downtown. <laughs> it was known for the Austin Avenue walking mall, which was the death blow to a lot of old businesses downtown. And so I think it was a lack of capital that left. It was the tornado, urban renewal, white flight, all those things where people were leaving town and they were going out to Woodway and they were going out to Midway. You know, Westview Village, which is right across the street from where we're recording, Richland Mall, Central Texas Marketplace, that capital and that spending moving farther and farther out of the downtown district. And so you didn't work there. You didn't have entertainment there. You definitely went to church there less and less, and you didn't live there. And so just this lack of people engaging with downtown, there's a long history of that in Waco's history. And that's, that's a relatively recent phenomenon predated Magnolia, but Magnolia's accelerated accelerated it. Yeah. And Stephen, for a while, Elm Avenue really was a super bustling African American commercial district that people would travel from all across the country to come visit. It was. Yeah. Bridge Street before it and then Elm Avenue. Yeah. It, it was a very active commercial district. And of course we're thinking pre I thirty five, right? So I mean that's the Dallas Highway. So, you know, pe- people coming through there 
a lot of activity, the interurban coming through there, a lot of activity in that area that really becomes a bit of a ghost town for several decades after that. And the interurban was the electric railway? And that's a great story, too. Electric railway service that goes from the Metroplex down to Waco. So you could jump on an electric rail car and and take it to Dallas. We need that again. That's so great. (laughs) Sounds awesome. (laughs) I'd write it. One of the things I like about this podcast in particular and our relationship, Stephen, is there's a lot that I'm very ignorant of. So I don't know much about Paul Quinn, and I keep hearing about it. Can you kind of tell me the historical significance? Yeah, so Paul Quinn is the first college for African Americans west of the Mississippi River. But that is a prominent piece of East Waco history, right? It's extremely prominent. I mean, up until 1990, Paul Quinn moves and goes and takes over the facilities of Bishop College, which was in Dallas, uh, and it's a huge blow. And actually, the story of Paul Quinn is a reflection of the story of East Waco, Uh, Nancy Grayson and supporters go into East Waco. They take these buildings that have been abandoned for 15 years, begin raising money and rehabbing them one at a time. I mean, these are ivy-covered final scenes of an apocalyptic teenager's (laughs) (laughs) movie. This is where you would film it. But they're going in building by building and taking these buildings over and making them productive again. And so now you've got kids coming in there. You've got kids getting a great education in that neighborhood, whereas Austin said, you know, they're, they're being bussed out or taken to other places to get education. Even that, what's happening right there on that corner is a picture, you know, it's kind of a metaphor for what's happening overall in East Waco. The Gildersleeve photos of Paul Quinn campus are amazing. There's this one really beautiful photo of a bunch of students who are in an art class. And I'm looking through this big Gildersleeve book that I have and it's white person, white person, white person, white person. Oh, this must be Paul Quinn. And mm-hmm. it goes back to a lot of white people. Gildersleeve had such a terrific knack for these little spotlights of Waco life. And we are all grateful that he was willing to hop on the other side of the river and make sure that that part of Waco life was documented well. Yeah, so Paul Quinn's the oldest historically black school in Texas, of higher learning in Texas. And so it located, it's founded earlier, but it locates on that spot we think of now in 1881. So where was it back then? It actually begins in Austin. So it's a Methodist school. Uh, it's, it's an AME school. It begins in Austin and it moves up to that spot uh, on Elm Avenue at the top of the hill in 1881. So it's there 1881 to 1990. Why did it initially locate there? What was the draw to East Waco in that location? You did have an African-American community large African-American community right behind there in Garrison Street is, as I said, was kind of the color line before at the top of the hill. So there is that population nearby that it could service. Also, Waco offered kind of a central location, as it still does, for African-American education to come to study. So with what we're doing now, is there anything reflected in the past of East Waco that we can kind of like, okay, this is this happened before, and this is where it failed. Is there anything that we can look at when it comes to that? So you're saying like all the false starts we talked about earlier with the rehabbing of the area? I think a lot of what we were seeing in this renaissance, as I said earlier, I think is addressing some of the false starts. Uh, There were concepts earlier, but now they're putting money behind it and individuals are willing to step up and take a risk, a bit of a risk. I would attribute it to a lot of different things. You can 
I mean, you can look what uh, Mission Waco has done over on 15th Street. I mean, there, there, there are these patterns of people going into communities in town, taking a bit of a risk to establish businesses, to put some capital into those areas, and be committed uh, for the long run to see it out. So I think there had been different attempts to do this, but I think the way the city's gotten behind it now, and you've had a few individuals step up and do it, and it's going to take people like Austin and Nancy and people like that that are willing to stick with it. So it was, it was people not wanting to take a risk. Is, is, is They'd get started and be like, oh, this isn't working, and I'm, we're going to back out before we lose more money. Uh, well, I think the city didn't necessarily have the money to put into it like they have the money to put sure. into it now. And I also think just the perception of where that money needs to be spent, if it needs to be spent. There are were, there were other priorities and other projects. But it's just such an obvious, I mean, Austin was kind of saying this, it's just such an obvious area to develop. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it does not make sense that it wouldn't be right at the end of the suspension bridge, that it wouldn't be a thriving area of town, that you would have throngs walking back and forth on those two sides of the river and enjoying all that mm-hmm. it has to offer, you know. From the memorial going up on that side of the river, I mean, there's just a lot of activity and a lot of energy there. It's a 10, 15-minute walk from, like, the heart of downtown to the beginning of Elm Avenue. Mm-hmm. And now it's connected to the Baylor campus. That's right. With the, uh, with the river walk. Yep. So you can walk down, and you can walk down to McLean Stadium. It's very convenient to McLean Stadium. But you can walk up the river to Cameron Park easily, which that, always, that wasn't always easy to get across there. And so it, it's really connected to the most vibrant areas of town. And so I, I think it's going to boom. Is there any more parts of its history that are really significant in giving it the kind of feel that it has? I think one of the challenges that I mentioned that it traditionally f- faced is it would flood. You know, so this is this is one reason why there had been hesitancy at times to put a lot of capital in that area. 1913, you have a big flood in that area. 1936, you have a big flood in that area. So one of the challenges it faced before you you have control along the river, well, along the rivers, is that perennial th- threat of flooding. And I'm not saying that threat is gone, but it is definitely hasn't happened in a long time, and we don't worry about things that don't happen in a long time. <laughs> we worry a lot about uh, little things that happen often, but not huge things that happen rarely. You know, so I think that that was one of the obstacles of it as well. You know, decisions that they made about zoning in East Waco. There's just a, a big circumstance of stuff that's happened that is making East Waco easier and more uh, appealing to people like Baylor coming in and helping out a little bit, the city wanting to come in and help out a little bit. I don't have a question with that, but it's just crazy to me that I'm from Fort Worth. Yeah. And the places that are dilapidated stay dilapidated. Yeah. People just keep going out. Is East Waco considered going out? I talked to Bill Falco on this question. If you know Bill Falco's name, he was worked for the city for years and I asked him about the development of downtown, development of some of these areas that still need to be developed. And and his argument was that they're not going to develop until the traffic gets worse in Waco. <laughs> uh, but the idea being that some of the suburban areas of Waco, are it's too easy to access Baylor uh, and you know some of the major employers in Waco from suburban areas. So we really need we need to really root for bad traffic problems <laughs> on I thirty five because that's what's going to drive individuals. Here to, comes the to, construction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, I I think it 
I think Waco has been has been a navigable place, much more navigable than Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it, it is as Fort Worth grew, people began to reconsider living down in the central city, you know, where the job opportunities mm-hmm. were and where the nightlife was and those sort of things. And so I think that'll happen in Waco as well as it becomes a little less navigable. God, that's one thing I love about Waco. Yeah, I know. I can get anywhere in about seven minutes. That's right. Yep. <laughs> even even the farthest reach of East Waco or all the way south to like McGregor, 15 minutes maybe. It was a really interesting argument, but the more I've thought about it, he's right. You know, it's got to... It's got to get worse before. You know, I complain when I have to go anywhere near Magnolia. I'm like, ah, here, here it comes. <laughs> I live it's down gonna, there. <laughs> it's going to be like, oh, you it's going to be Where like five live? minutes. I live off of 4th and Waco. One of the two old houses left there in the block with uh, Cameron Heights. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Why are people going over there? Because I, like, from my aspect, I, because I, I live so close, I see all the empty buildings that are still downtown. Yeah. Why go East Waco instead of filling up more of downtown? I think it's what Randy was saying about property values. I mean, uh, Randy or Austin were saying about property values going up on one side of the river and not as much on the other side of the river. So Magnolia's closeness to downtown is going to be the reason that Elm Avenue explodes. Well, and the reason, too, is that it contributes if, to if you're a tourist and you're from this, you're coming in this area, you know, you do the Magnolia thing. That's that's maybe a day if you really want to. 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and so you go, hey, what's next? Where's where's a cool place to eat? Where's a cool place to see and the history thing i think is a big we're seeing a lot of podcast listeners to our podcast from surrounding big metroplexes of people that are sure yeah tourists absolutely and so i think if you go oh historic elm avenue that sounds interesting you know people want to go check that out do you think that's i'd be interested in asking nancy if i'm wondering if it's the magnolia crowd that she's getting Last time I went in there, it was all college kids. Yeah, that's what I'm... I'm thinking like Hecho. Okay, that's probably... They're probably getting the Magnolia crowd. I'm wondering how much of the Magnolia crowd they're getting on. Even Cajun Craft is mostly kids. Oh, yeah. Like Cajun Craft over yeah. there off 11th Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really... I don't know where it's going to go. But yeah, I mean, also, I find out about places to eat based on like Yelp. If yeah. I'm not from the that's area. That's true. And I still check it to see if there's something new I haven't heard of. And Lula James is always. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so if I'm a tourist from Fort Worth or Dallas or Houston and I looking at that and I go, oh, it's not very far away. And I think if there's not a lot of tourists there now, it probably will be the next. There will be. Yeah. Tourist place. I think you're right. And Waco Tours does go up there. Mm -hmm. They do. Yeah. They go up. I did that. They go up to the library. They use that mural on the library to kind of talk about East Waco, Mm -hmm. that side mural. So we've done the, the full circuit. We've done. East Waco today, East Waco in the future, and East Waco in the past. So I think we've covered it all. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming in for this podcast. It's been I a learned real, a lot. Yeah, it's <laughs> been a really fun time getting to know this little known part of Waco. I love it. And now my interview with Carla Dotson, owner and operator of Boardwalk on Elm, a popular food truck in East Waco. I am Carla Dotson. I'm a 40-ish year old uh, <laughs> African American veteran female. I've been back in Waco a couple of years here, born, raised, went to school at La Vega um, High School, so I'm a pirate. Joined the military and came back to re-experience Waco since I left so early after high school. I've moved over to East Waco. I've been living 
on the other side of McLean Stadium. And so that's transformed. I've been there at least 15 years since I've been back. What helped me start a new business in East Waco? I don't think that I was trying to create a new business. I think it was something that I followed my son. He enjoyed horses and I just been to a couple of trail rides. He was about 15 years old and he was hanging out with, you know, some older guys. So I was there kind of monitoring his progress. And so when I saw that there was a need for food or vending at mm -hmm. some of these events that I try to do a food truck. So got the food truck, had it a couple of years, about five years. We were on and off the trail rides here and we decided to buy some property about six years ago and found the property that was on Elm. Parked the trailer there. And so I just recently, last year, I worked for the Department of VA for about 10 years and decided to go ahead and leave when I heard about the development that was gonna be here. And then I, I watched, you know, the stuff that was going on with Magnolia, cause we were right across the street from, I worked downtown in that area for six. So we watched the growth of at Magnolia and I was just thinking, wow, you know, it will be great you know, once they come across over in the East Waco. But I didn't know what it was gonna entail, you know, that we didn't know about the hotels were coming in, some other stuff, but I just decided to be a part of and kind of get my name out ahead of the other restaurants and, and development that was gonna be here. Just taking you back some of that history. My dad is from South Waco, off of 7th Street, over where Baylor had the development. So my childhood memory had been on, off of 7th Street, all of the old houses, the wood frame houses. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandmother lived there for several years, you know, till she died and, and my dad and my uncle decided to sell it, the, the house, and somebody took it and renovated it and made it a two-story house uh, before they started doing all of the the apartments and some different stuff that, that you see now. So I just remember playing over in the streets and it, the neighborhood is totally different. When we go over now, it's like, okay, this is my grandmother's house, but <laughs> you know, you kind of get lost in it. So we've seen some of the changes and just listening to some of the stories about, you know, how mainly African-American people that lived in South Waco and this is where they lived for years and years. And then there was a regentrification of some sort that moved everybody over to East Waco, where everybody had to start over and kind of got planted here. So I've heard the stories that there were behind that, you know, some people felt like they didn't get a fair share to, to start over, to get a better home, to get, to actually like move up. So some of the generations that I listen to and kind of take note of it now that I own property, you know, to be mindful of what you're actually selling, you know, you're selling some history or some family heirloom or whatever it is, you know, how important is that to you? Because once it's gone, it's gone. Like I said, as far as the example of my grandmother's home, you know, my, my dad is deceased now, my uncle is deceased. So we have one more piece of uh, property there in South Waco, but I kind of look at that now before I decide like, hey, I want to sell or is it really worth it? Is something that my dad really wanted me to do or my family really wanted us to do? Because, you know, I'm not for sure all the sacrifices that my grandmother had to, to make to have those those things. My mom is from East Waco, so that's how we ended up in East Waco, like I said, in, near the Baylor Stadium area, which is a really important area now too, because it looks like we're getting some migration from Baylor into the area. They own probably, I don't know, about 70% of our neighborhood now. People buying lots over there and they were pretty cheap and stuff. So I, like I said, I reinvested into East Waco myself once Baylor decided to put the stadium up and we had had some conversations. We were called Olive Heights 
area that we lived in. Partnering up kind of with the Neighborhood Association, we started to have some conversations at the churches, bringing people out to kind of hear about what was going on with Baylor. We were asking for transparency. Because like I explained, you know, before in South Waco, if it was some regentrification and people felt like, you know, well, I got moved out of my neighborhood really cheaply and, and then I'm just left really with nothing or I'm having to scramble to go find a place to stay. I didn't really want to see that happen. So got with the commissioner Gibson at that time. He um, helped spearhead some stuff, get organized with the church. Meetings got bigger and bigger. People were coming out to listen or hear about what was going on, about properties, and you can hear all the stories and the passion that was going on inside there. They were, you know, people were like, look, Baylor, you know, you guys already did this before. We don't want to see this again, you know, or we don't want to be cheated. So let us know what was going on. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. We're just putting a stadium up. But we wanted to know the impact of the stadium, the noise, the traffic, the people, you know, what were the future plans? And because we live between the stadium and the brick, the Baylor Research Center there, you know, it was really important because that's just a small section of, of land there. And we're off of I-35, so it's a rich in access to highway the highway six the i-35 very convenient area very convenient so what if we get pushed out so we had the conversations and baylor put the stadium up and the last couple of years have been okay people have done parking so it's kind of worked out a little bit okay because people are more aware about what they have and how valuable it is to them we've just come to a point now where now it's on this other side of the river and I know a lot of people say, oh, they blame Baylor for this and that, you know, because money is being put towards projects and they feel like some of the movement is towards Baylor or whatever. Uh, now we're looking at in East Waco about the Magnolia effect, mm -hmm. the tourists, the people that are coming in is different from what we saw with Baylor in East Waco. Is that different because they're coming temporarily to kind of enjoy themselves and to learn more about Waco and then they're leaving. And with Baylor, it's more of maybe they were slowly coming in and and buying up some of the houses and the properties around where you live? Well, kind of both, because you got a lot of people that may come in and out, but some of the people are coming in at, from out of state, right? and they're enjoying Waco, and they like it. They see, you know, small town, retirement, or community, or whatever. They can get here and invest in Waco also. Mm -hmm. I was explaining to a lady yesterday that she was from Dallas. I said, you know, in other cities, when they see growth, they put the plan together, it happens, they build it, and it's up. Mm -hmm. really quick process but here in Waco everything's kind of been slow mm -hmm. the money's trickling in they're having to redo the infrastructure just some of the slowness so people are more aware mm -hmm. of what's happening or you're more in tune to it once the information gets out there so people that are coming in or developers that are coming in they're looking at it Waco is kind of an easy place to kind of get in and spend some money and maybe not too expensive. It's expensive now, but uh, I mean, it's a little bit more costly than it. I mean, especially what I paid for some of the property that I bought a couple of years ago. I mean, it's not that same price, but people are coming in maybe from out of town. So the heart of what they feel is not what we feel here in East Waco. You know, the impacts of the community. I Talked to the young lady yesterday about when you have the TIF funds and people are looking into opportunity zones and, and all these things that you get with it. But what happens behind the, for instance, if Elm Street is, has this corridor where the TIF zone is in, okay, that money is to increase the businesses or help revitalize the area or whatever it is. But what happens behind that? 
that business. You know, do people drive down Elm Street and they see all these nice big buildings and people everywhere and having a good time? But then when you drive down the street two blocks and it's people's houses are slummed or run down or empty lots or whatever, you know, how does the city come back and help people kind of stay in the neighborhoods? We know about the homesteading and some other stuff that people should do. But I think some of the people in the neighborhoods are looking more like, okay, you're giving $300,000 towards a project for a business, but what happens is that money set aside for us to do some landscaping or painting or whatever. So me, my opinion, I just think that some money should be reinvested into the community outside of that. And I think that's what a lot of the scary is because people want to stay in their homes. I mean, you know, even though it does get expensive, sometimes you can make adjustments. Or if you got an older neighborhood and you got older neighbors or renters or whatever, how do you help them make those adjustments behind that development, you know, like I said, you go into other cities and boom, they put up the sky rises, the areas are just filled with the restaurants and everything else. So it kind of gets consumed in and then people kind of build up around that. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's not what's happening here. From your point of view is that you have a business on Elm and you would like to capitalize on more people coming into your business, obviously. And so if tourism brings people here, that's great for you. But your mom's from here, you know the area, you know the community. It's a double-edged sword, right? It is. So. It is. Um, and I think more of mine, too, kind of started out when we put it there because I didn't really understand that it was going to be this much development either. I mean, I couldn't have foreseen it. I just knew that reinvesting back into a place where I live and mm-hmm. work or whatever that I'm in all the time. So having my business over here, yes, I would like to be have the customers. I would like to, to capitalize on that too. But on the second half of that, people drive by there. They see that and they get inspired. Oh, well, if if she's doing it because they know me or whatever it is here. And they're like, oh, well, she made it kind of look easy to go ahead and start a, a business. Of course, you want to capitalize on it and make sure the business grows and that it's, that it's not shut out. You know, all the small businesses shut out because, you know, you got the hotels that are coming. Those are large entities or the condos or restaurants that come here but sometimes it's the outside influences they come in and then they set the precedent well what about the people that live in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. you know because I just drive across the bridge and then I'm here that's just what I'm trying to make sure that I'm an example of how do people like myself who really want all of Waco to thrive and to be a great place for people to be how do we help develop East Waco, but also help it keep its character? We definitely need to preserve a lot of the character here. Some of it's already been kind of replaced or it's going to be replaced, you know, when with the purchase of the buildings here or, and it's going to transform into something new. But I just think through maybe the arts or keeping some of the local businesses that had already been here, for example, like Todd's Flowers mm-hmm. or Maryland's Gift Gallery, keeping pieces of those legacies there. I know there was a discussion about a plaza that was being built. They're needing input on preserving the character, maybe doing some stars uh, with some of the names of people, you know, Mae Mm -hmm. Jackson and Commissioner Gibson, Wilbert Austin, some of our people that have 
been really influential in the neighborhood. I mean, not just off of Elm, but, you know, there's the other side of Lord's Audio Capital, some different businesses that have been around for a long time that are still there. Pictures, through, like I said, even if it's art or some type of maybe a small museum, you know, murals or whatever it is, but preserving a lot of those those things. Like right now, I'm looking across, I see the Jockey Club. Everybody knew the Jockey Club where you go get your hair cut or you can go in and sit up and get the latest uh, news, you know, from <laughs> the, the barbers there. That was the, the thing to do. You know, like I said, that's still there. It's beautified on the outside, but it's still that same presence on the inside when mm-hmm. you walk in, if you had been in there before. So really partnering with the businesses and the people in the community to try and build up that side of the economy. People that are coming from outside, trying to listen to the people that are already here and have already been doing stuff for many years, right? Right. Uh, Miss Marilyn has been in business 29 years. She knows the Paul Quinn's, the hotel that was across the street, the Safeway. She's been here a long time, so she knows all of those things that were here. Well, how do you preserve it? Like I said, through maybe some art or some artifacts or something that business may put up in in their stores or brochures or some type of magazine, something that we can have to share with tourists and and some different things. But I don't think that's happened just yet. You know, Mm -hmm. that way you hear about East Waco. Well, what about East Waco? Uh, For a long time, it had a bad reputation. Don't go across the river. Things have happened here, truthfully, you know. We, We have a very nice park up the street. A lot of the people are neighborhood people that are still there, whether good, bad, or whatever, they still utilize the park in some type of way. They're there on a daily basis. Their kids playing, there's basketball. They have different functions during the summer. I know uh, one guy that comes every year around August, right before school starts, you know, he does a giveaway, backpack giveaway. Uh, He's a local rapper uh, here, but he's trying to give back to the neighborhood. But actually, People coming in to find out who are these people that mm-hmm. are trying to make sure that community that they are seeing, you know, who's who's behind what. More of a partnership. Yeah, more partnership. Maybe I've always saying that we need to utilize the city of Waco channel. East Waco is not seen a lot. If we're talking about something, they're talking about development or they're talking about something that's going on in East Waco that, you know. But how do you highlight East Waco? Well, you highlight what it is now. That way you get to visualize what it is now and then once it transforms, you still know what it looked like before. The food truck is not a specific race or specific color that has to eat. Um, It's something to put on your stomach if you're hungry. Some place to be outdoors. I like outdoors. Mm -hmm. I like to sit out when it's nice. I mean, sometimes we've been out there when it's cold or too (laughs) hot. That's the whole gist of it, just to be a part of it. Like, we kind of laugh about it. We call Elm Street now of a small Crenshaw, you know, where the people used to ride up and down the street and uh, you go by and if we're sitting out there, you can hear people blowing the horn, bump, bump, bump. So, you know, they just recognize you being there. If we move the food truck, you know, I get phone calls, Where, where's the truck at? You know, bring it back. So, like I said, I think it's, mine is just more, has morphed into more than just trying to have a business here. Is people come there every day just for conversation they're like Carla what's going on today and I'm like I don't know just hang around a little longer you know such and such might come by or whatever so it's it's that type of atmosphere maybe whatever I started out to be is morphing into something different I mean well not really different but a meeting place I see a lot of people just just come by you know coming to get something to drink but they're just asking questions well what's going on with the development of have they put the hotels up there when are they gonna start you know so Sometimes, you know, I get some of the information that that I can share with them. Where do you see 
East Waco in five years, 10 years in the future there? I think that it is going to transform, and I'm hoping that it'll be a place of congregation by everybody. Like I said, just watching the, the Magnolia effect, the tourists come in, the people to enjoy what East Waco has to offer. And I'm hoping that there can be some more conversations about bringing more entertainment here. I got a lot of people that were like, we have nothing to do here. We have a lot of some of the empty spaces. I know a lot of, of the uh, developers are coming in. Everybody wants to do these startup businesses or think tanks or whatever. But I think people are more interested in can they take their kids bowling or to uh, places like Main Event and Dave and Buster's or some type of entertainment place. We don't have that here. It, it would draw people or families here. I just think that East Waco needs to see some of that also. I'd like to see some of the little banks or pharmacies or little shopettes or little places like that where you can come the boutiques i'd like to see more of that too that comes here in the area because like i said it is rich in culture as far as there's a lot of people that are here even though it doesn't look all this beautiful or, or whatever now but in five years i'm sure that it'll change and, and it'll draw more people to invest in into the area so let's give a little plug to your food truck i want to know more about it because I'm, I'm actually getting kind of hungry okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm getting ready to open up so <laughs> the food truck is a fill your belly type place uh <laughs> with the cheeseburgers it's basic um foods that like i said we were doing trail rides so i'm not a culinary expert and i'm getting some of those people over there are food bloggers and stuff and i'm like hey you guys i've just been in the office about 10 years <laughs> now i i never com- said that i was this culinary expert but i have tried to watch a lot of of youtube and tvs and go to other food trucks to see what they're doing and kind of upgrade what i'm doing but i have uh, some chicken some fish and they are fried food um chicken fish some of the short ribs a lot of the people like the short ribs that's a popular thing cheeseburger bacon cheeseburgers jalapeno cheeseburgers of course the french fries some onion rings sounds so good yes (laughs) Uh, because i kind of mimicked a bit of what i used to taste lee's drive-in that's one of our icon uh, restaurants mr lee passed last year i believe it was he created a legacy I hear a lot of people come and they said, oh, we can't find a good link basket and leaves us closed down. I'm just mimicking some of the the stuff that I tasted before. And it's been pretty satisfying so far. I've been doing this a little over a year now, maybe a year and two months full time serving link baskets. I'm trying to add some shakes or floats to our menu. So but it's a process. I mean, I'm learning a lot. Good Americana food is what it sounds like. Yes, yes, it's very good, very good. You're an entrepreneur. You decided to take the risk and and be a business owner. Do you think that's something that could also help East Waco and help the people here if we kind of encourage maybe the younger people to be entrepreneurs to think that way? I believe so. What I'm learning about the entrepreneur, the first year, you really have to have your funds together. You really have to have an idea and find out what a niche is. You know, how do you find out what's really needed? You know, how bringing the customers in, the market. And the, the everything that goes with it. I hadn't advertised as much. I spent more time trying to perfect on what I was trying to cook, customer service. This year, I'm more focused on getting the books together and then doing marketing and then bringing in more people coming in to enjoy the food. But I see a lot of startup, you know, things that are popping up here. People want to start up businesses. A lot of organizations are, are doing a lot of the startup but my thing is, where are the organizations that help maintain once you get on your feet, once it's running? The banks, you know, being more supportive in some of the things that, that are, are going to make it or whatever. Because actually, 
we've been reinvesting into the food truck. So now I have actually three. I have one that we're just running full time. Yeah. A dynasty. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And one looks like a little barbecue wagon. We kind of use that one as far as the churches. You know, they've used it before, whatever. But And then we have the 17-foot trailer that we're trying to focus on more, getting to the businesses, the Cargills, the Sanderson Forums, the PCA, the businesses, maybe in the evening times to kind of support them. So, like I said, just finding niches in all of it, you know, it's, it's a it's a lot. But like I said, just what helps a business stay in business? What do you need to stay? Because you can have the ideas and people can help you start and you need all of this. You start, but how do you finish? How do you get to the finish? That's the, mm-hmm. the big thing that I've been looking at. I've been thinking about there's a lot of startup type of companies in downtown, a lot of co-working spaces yeah. and stuff with lots of entrepreneurs that have lots of knowledge. You know, there's a business school here at Baylor and all the other colleges. It'd be great if they would come together, you know, come this side of the river and really help the people here have their next business idea take off, right? Right. Yeah. Really I, I've seen a lot of that. And uh, uh, some of them have reached out to me to participate in, in some of the startup stuff. But I'm like, I'm not even at the point of startup. I'm at the point of maintaining, you know. <laughs> and you have a lot of people with a lot of knowledge. I'm learning a lot. But there's nothing like having your own business. And then day to day, it's different from, you know, textbook. Right. What's the day to day, the OJT? So <laughs> that's the other part of it, because like I said, yeah, they do have a lot of the groups downtown, and I'm I'm hoping that they move some of it here. Now we have City Center, because I am going through a, a Weibo program. They've done it, I think, three years in a row, but this is the first time that uh, I decided to participate in it for my own benefit, as far as like refresher. I have a master's degree, but how's that master's degree help me? And I hadn't been doing working in that field at all how does the textbook become reality so that's where I am and I just need to refresh on really what everything is again but like I said hopefully they do come over or people go over and and get that information and be able to get some of the space if there's going to be space here how do they connect with the businesses the developers that put different stuff here you Mm -hmm. know because like I said if you got the hotels well what small business finds a niche with the hotel? What does the hotel need? Mm-hmm. You know, especially if they're providing all the amenities too. How does that outside person create a business from the outside? How do they support that business? Does somebody have a dry cleaning service and they're coming to pick everything up? Or does that affect the hotel? You know, just some different services, kind of like the Uber Mm-hmm. Uh, thing you know uber was taking you around you know you need to be picked up at home and dropped off at the library uh now they're doing uber eats i'm using mm-hmm. the, the the service now so you know how do you find your your niche around even if you want to start start a small business how do you find a niche in the the development is what i'm saying right well it'll be very interesting to see how east waco develops and best of luck to your food truck it Thank sounds you. amazing i Thank can't you. wait to try the food and so where are you parked most of the time i am at 904 elm street and that is our home location that's where we'll be it's right across from the east waco library and uh, we have a beautiful mural that's on the side and the waco tours comes by there mostly every day to show people that mural off but i'm on the end i'm the lady in the orange shirt so <laughs> <laughs> uh, i was a part of that project when they did that but uh it's just exciting to me to 
to know. Well, it wasn't on purpose. It just happened. But for me to have a location, a small location, because I don't own a huge property. I don't own a brick and mortar building, you know, just have a food truck. And to have that location there visible where everybody can see. And like I said, you know, hopefully it's going to inspire some more people to if they're not doing food, you know, maybe you can do something else mobile, you know. Well, go get your burger and come down here, come down to East Waco, come to Elm and learn what the area is about, right? Absolutely. Come find out about East Waco and see it before the transformation because it's going to happen. So, Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, here's Doreen Ravenscroft, head of Cultural Arts of Waco, talking about the Doris Miller Memorial on the east banks of the Brazos. I'm Doreen Ravenscroft. I'm president of Cultural Arts of Waco and have been working in Waco since the 1970s. And one of the big projects that you're kind of in charge of is the Doris Miller Memorial. We've had a podcast previously talking about Doris Miller, so refer back to that if you want the full story on Doris Miller. But kind of tell me how the project started. The project started really because we got involved in doing public art in Waco in downtown Waco, specifically the the branding, the Brazos, the Chisholm Trail. It was Jerry Powell, Professor Jerry Powell from the Baylor Law School, who kind of contacted us and said, if you're getting involved in historical monuments, I think the next thing that you should do is something about Doris Miller. And our board looked at it and we went, yes. Had you known who Doris Miller was previous to that? No, not really. What was it about his story that you really fell in love with? I think like most young men at that time who actually enlisted First of all, you fall in love with that, that they were going to do something for their country. Mm -hmm. But then his story that he was trying to better himself, he wanted a better life for himself. I think those were the big things. This project is no easy feat because it's a it's a huge monument that we have now on the banks of the Brazos. But how did it start? How did you get some funding together? How did you get people organized around this cause? Well, you know, first of all, you have to tell the story yourself. So it starts off with an RFP. We didn't have a site. So the first thing was actually to look at some sites along the Brazos River. Mm -hmm. All of us felt that the memorial should be on the east side of the river. Mm -hmm. His family lived in a home in East Waco, which has been burnt down. But more than that, really using the arts in a way that could also be economic development and help people cross the river to the other side, but also build back community. Was the site on the Brazos also kind of a good idea because of his naval background? It was. It's an amazing site. And, you know, once we got that RFP defined Mm -hmm. and finally got to choosing the five finalists who all came into Waco, it was like we didn't realize the impact it would have on them when they saw the site. It was like their dream site. Mm -hmm. So you get started, you have your, your area, your place. How do you start raising funds for that sort of stuff? You actually make a brochure. You (laughs) make a brochure and then you just start talking to people, getting folks involved, doing um, programs. We talked to uh, the churches in East Waco. They were so excited. We had gospel concerts. We had um, films on Pearl Harbor Day just to make people aware and gradually build support for for the memorial and of course Jerry Powell and Mike Parrish they actually did amazing programs at Baylor combining both Doris Miller and actually Mike Parrish's father and so that brought more awareness and also brought you know funds 
into the project. Mm-hmm. And it's a very striking memorial. I've been down there a few times already, and I just love the larger-than-life figure of Doris Miller there, kind of with his parade rest, what you do as you're coming into a home port type, type of thing. Kind of describe what does it look like when people walk down to the monument there? Oh, it's so hard. I think you want to follow the steel hull. Okay. But first is the story about the steel hull. It actually represents many sailors make a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's made of very many parts, over 9,000 bolts. But when you think of a ship, it's a huge team. And Doris Miller was a part of a team. There was that aspect. And Dan actually brought that aspect to us in his watercolor as to how he decided on the design was that part of it was many sailors make a ship. Another part was the reflection pool Mm -hmm. indicating a loss of life for which happened on the Liscombe Bay. Uh, for Doris Miller and many of his crewmen. Currently at the moment, you just walk up and you you see a kind of outline image in concrete of a ship shape. You also have the contemporary image of a ship's hull. But then at the end, almost to the point, you have this 150% life-size bronze of Doris Miller. Um, coming home was really important to the community. His family, although we had many concepts of the memorial that showed him lifting the captain um, to a safe place on the West Virginia, what they really wanted to see was the, the medal being awarded and what they wanted was something that said coming home mm-hmm. and the thing that says coming home is when a navy ship comes into port mm-hmm. you know and they man the deck i'm actually a navy man myself did uh five years in the navy and i was on <laughs> the uss kitty hawk and so i have manned the rails many times and it's it's one of those sites that from shore it's really impressive to see the ship come in and all the people in their dress whites or their blues, depending on the season. But then also it's a a really important thing for the sailor, especially when they're coming home, kind of getting misty eyed, right? Like you finally come home. So it kind of works both ways. I think this monument, because you have him coming home and and you can view him and he can view you sort of, right? Yes. (laughs) And and, you know, on December the 7th, when we actually did a dedication, mm-hmm. because all the fencing was down and it was really a very big open space, we went in the cold and rain afterwards with his family. And it was very emotional. But one of the things was that they said, he has finally come home. Mm-hmm. We feel he has come home. And I'm sure for many families who lost their loved ones at sea, and there is nowhere no closure, huh? It, there's a closure, yes. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this dedication ceremony that you guys had last year. It was supposed to be at the memorial, but kind of very typical, I think, in Navy weather. You know, <laughs> when the bronze came, we ended up doing it with flickerings of snow. Mm. Uh, this year, last year, I should say, we were inundated with rather a lot of rain. And so we made the decision to have the dedication inside at the Bledsoe Miller. Everybody kind of sprung into action, you know, kind of almost what you would do when you get called to orders. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody was on, right. on point. 
to do something in a hurry. We did have, obviously, representatives from our local local Navy support system, young folks from um, the ROTC who led the Pledge of Allegiance. That was absolutely amazing to see so many young people because he was very young. He was still in his teens to have all these young people there uh, taking part in the dedication was absolutely fantastic. And I think that they saw too in the older generation how important Darius Miller was. It was great to have his family there and to have a response from them. What surprised us the most was the two awards that were given, one from the National Black Caucus, Congressional Caucus, and one from the NAACP. We had not realized that the work that we had been doing in getting recognition for Doris Miller had actually gone as far as those national offices. So mm-hmm. it was great to have those gentlemen there. But even more important was the Admiral mm-hmm. that came, Admiral Jones. The Navy was saying in a big way, anyone can get to the top of the Navy now. Hopefully we'll have some really nice days coming up soon. I feel like whenever we've had some ceremonies or stuff there, it's always been terrible weather, which is uncharacteristic for Waco. We have nice weather most of the time, don't we? <laughs> we do. But you know what? Every time we've had a special occasion there, the some of the retired crew from the USS Miller come and it's like, oh, this is fine. This is Navy weather. And the we're Admiral tough. said, this is a, oh, this is a good day to set sail. And they're all going, really? <laughs> you know, either we're getting, for want of not asking, but for some weird reason, we're getting Navy weather every time we do something. But I'm hoping when we finally bring in the bronze reliefs, which tell his story from childhood all the way up to Pearl Harbor, that it'll be our turn to have a sunny day. Yeah. And so speaking of that, if you drive by it or you walk down to it, it looks like it's done, but it's not fully done yet, right? No, it's not fully done. The refraction pool does not look finished. um, And I've been asked about that. Isn't there like another special rail? And yes, there is. There's a whole number of plaques that go around it, which are honoring servicemen from World War II and other wars. We hope to complete those for Memorial Day and hopefully have a concert on the site and then December the 7th bring in the final reliefs Mm -hmm. which are being created by Eddie Dixon who's um, a self-taught sculptor who's in Lubbock. Even though it looks really nice and looks really close to done, the people that helped get that ready in time for these ceremonies, there's still some some payment that they need and really donations would help you guys out a lot, right? Donations certainly would. Patriot Erectors, when they found out that um, we were actually going to do a dedication, they just told us they were going to finish it. And it's like, we're still raising the funds because <laughs> they were supposed to build a bit and you know we right. kind of pay as you go. But they said, no, we want to see it finished and they had an amazing team very diverse team a young woman and and two guys one was african-american one was white and none of them knew the story but i think they kept on going back to their offices and telling the story and by the time they'd finished they were telling stories to visitors because the fence came down Mm -hmm. it was just amazing to see this three of them um, you know working as a team to get this done and also so proud to be working on the monument and realizing that it was something that was hopefully going to be there forever. 
So if people want to give donations, what's the best way to do that? The best way to do that is at the our website, dorismillermemorial.org. And there's actually a donation page on our homepage. There's an opportunity to donate. It's through mobile cores. And it's really easy just to do it. You can even do it on your phone if you want to. And I was talking with a coworker earlier about Doris Miller's story can connect to everybody. And I feel like that's the best part about this. If you're a service member, if you know somebody who's a service member, you can connect that way. If you're an African-American, you can connect that way. If you're from Waco, you can connect that way. And then even broader, if you're an American and you're a patriot, you can connect that way. And then just the human spirit, the, the idea of he was a cook, he was a messman, and when duty called, he came. Yes. And actually, you know, it goes even further than that because all over the world there are people that are interested in the history of World War Two. They actually travel to various sites, as you know, mm-hmm. and there are a group of people within the United States that are actually going to begin a tour of have them marked on a Pacific kind of memorial trail. And that's what will happen to the Doris Miller Memorial. We talked about it being built in East Waco, and we're putting together this podcast episode to talk about East Waco. What do you think this memorial, being where it is, means for the community in that area? Most of all, I think it means pride. I think, again, too, that we as a city have recognized someone who was really important within the Navy. And when you go to Pearl Harbor, you see that he is, but we haven't really embraced that here in Waco. And I think we have now. I also feel we have become that stepping stone to cross the river to make an investment that honors a member of the community, but also helps to bring people to look at East Waco as it looks today in a different way because it was actually the most thriving area of Waco at one point and to see it having lost all that with with the buildings just you know through the tornado and just life itself the buildings going down I think it's so wonderful that we are really recognizing that every part of our city is important. And we have a lot of tourists that they come and they go to the suspension bridge. Now they can see Doris Miller from on the bridge and they go, hey, what's that? And maybe they come over. And then once they've come over, they go, you know, what else is there to do here in East Waco? Let me check out the businesses here. And there's lots of businesses going in now. There are lots of businesses going in. And there's also the businesses that were there. And, you know, my favorite one is Marilyn's Gifts, simply because if you need a hat, if the lady (laughs) need it's the best place in Waco to go. (laughs) And where is that exactly? It's actually in the 800 block, just before the library on the opposite side of the road. It's a fabulous little shop (laughs) just to go browse around in. And so you spend a lot of time in East Waco, right? I do, yes. I've spent many years in East Waco. I think in the 80s, I did a a summer camp. Again, it was in the pouring rain. It seems to be (laughs) the thing I do in East Waco. (laughs) It's in the rain. When I met many of the children, I just loved them and how enthusiastic they were and how much they wanted to learn. And just because you're living in a poorer neighborhood, it doesn't mean to say that, you know, you shouldn't have great education and you should have opportunities. And I think this is what we need to make sure that all our children have in Waco have a great education. So you have a better boots on the ground experience than most people. When people ask you about East Waco, like, what is it? What is it becoming? What do you tell them? I want to make sure that they listen to the community. I think the community understands that what they say, they may have lost Elm Avenue, 
but they don't want to lose their sense of village, mm. which is behind Elm Avenue. I think we need to look at that. Mm. There is a village there. It needs help. It needs some, and we can do that. So I hope we keep that village feel. It would be a really unique part to have a village within a city. So you said they need help. What's the best way that someone who's not in East Waco a lot can help out East Waco maintain its its image and who it is and its character, but also help it grow and prosper into the future? I think getting involved in listening and then not deciding yourself, but listening. It may be quite the opposite to what you think the folks need. So I think listening is the biggest thing. Well, thank you so much, Doreen, for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for telling us about Doris Miller and about East Waco and all you're doing. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. Ago, as he dropped the guns that she hated in the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio